from Buffalo Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is What's Next Producers Picks, highlights from conversations heard on previous episodes. On today's show. That everybody that this, in, this solution impacts is in the room mm-hmm. for this conversation, mm-hmm. right? Shareholders, stakeholders, um, caretakers, community members, administrative teams. From the top down, we all in the room and we're all ideating on this challenge to present a solution that uh, impacts us all. We hear from Naja Bolden, founder of Phoenix Innovation Group, LLC. And we close with... A lot of people said, shared ownership? What are you talking about? Cooperatives? What are you talking about? And we said, what is the most successful institution in the black community? The church. That's a co-op. It's people pooling their resources and planning and developing based on unity around a singular goal. Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor Jr., Director of the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at the University at Buffalo. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for listening. We start with my conversation with Naja Bolden, whose company, Phoenix Innovation Group LLC, helps individuals achieve their goals through performance coaching, speaking, consulting, and facilitating creativity. You are also an author. I am. Before we get into everything, talk to me about these books that you've published. I started out, as I was mentioning to you earlier, with a fellowship at ECC, and that's where my research began. And coming up through UB to Buff State, I kind of like continued on that research. And with my master's project, I kind of like just reduced that down into some modules as I started the business. And that was about six years ago I started. But here we are today with the one Creativity Unleashed, your path to excellence, which is our structured framework broken down into modules, where instead of just calling me for coaching or working with me, you can work at your own pace and tap into me when necessary. The second book is Creative Mastery, and that's your 30-day journey to triumphance. And that's more in the vein of things that inspire me, like John Randolph Price's Abundance book and Florence Govelshin's The Game of Life and How to Play It, where they focus on changing these habits that we have to produce more adaptive behaviors towards the things that we want that aligns with our goals, principles, integrity, things like that. So creativity is a large part of what you do, who you are. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, sir. I am just so passionate about imagination and using people's imagination to run up against their biggest hurdles and turn those into opportunities. So while studying creativity, I ran across researchers Akoff and Vergara and their definition for creativity, and it's one that stayed within my veins since I've learned it. It's creativity is the ability to modify self-imposed constraints. So when you break that down, I have a background in psychology because I'm a psychology nerd, Thomas. So <laughs> my background is in psychology. So with going through therapy and, you know, like I said, spending 17 years researching behavior, you see that we are always in our own way. Mm-hmm. No matter what it is from the smallest to the tallest thing, whether it be organizational facing or client facing, individual facing, self facing. We are in our own way. So what are some practical tools, tips, tricks, principles, methodologies that help me not only get out of my way, but stay out of my way? And when I can stay out of my way, I can start to lead people to innovation and change. And that's where we get into creative leadership. You are born and bred 
in Buffalo. Yes, I am. Lower East Side. Yes, I am. Um, Walden and Miller, to be specific. Okay. All right. What do you love about the neighborhood you grew up in? How it, you know, echoes the truth of America, right? Like, we just learned from UB study that they just released the results on that the East Side of Buffalo has been left neglected for the past 31 years, mm-hmm. right? And that's beyond being benign neglect of the of the Nixon era, right? Like, I'm 39, so that deliberate neglect was happening while I was living there, right? So mm-hmm. what I love about my neighborhood is that we were still able to thrive in darkness. You know what I mean? Now, that might look like survival in all other spaces of normalcy. Yeah. However, things still grew there, right? Mm-hmm. So the tenacity, the fortitude that people exemplify when they come out of that space is extraordinary, right? But it's the it's that darkness that we do have to get out of, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the fire that we come with in Phoenix Innovation Group and helping transform that kind of thinking, right? Like I can be the top of this market, but this is the furthest that I can go. No, we can go everywhere you imagine. You just need the tools, tricks, tips, strength, courage, and confidence to get you there. Like you said, you're East Side Buffalo. I know there was there was kind of a, a media-led discussion about East Side versus East Buffalo. Do you consider yourself an East Sider or are you an East Buffalonian? Uh, I've, in short, I'm, I'm an East Sider for life, but I do understand innovation and where the market is going. Mm-hmm. Do you and, think that, that talk about East Buffalo, is that a marketing thing? Yes, of how course see, it is. How do you see it like that? Because for East Siders, the East Side would always be the East Side, uh-huh. right? But if we are marketing towards the East to get some type of heterogeneity, there, mm-hmm. right? We're trying to mix things up and get aerate the soil and get new people in there. When we need to market that, because as it is, it's the belt line, right? It's the color of law. It's gerrymandering. All those things is the east side as it currently stands. But if we have a migrant community starting to come in and flourish within those spaces, we have white folks that wouldn't normally be on the east starting to move into the east. Those sorts of things. You have to market the beauty that's there because without that, then it would be running under the same narrative, the same kind of plights that it used to. So I get it. It doesn't mean that people that I know from the east side is on board with right. the name change. but You could, you understand it. I do understand, I guess, what they're trying to achieve. I don't mm-hmm. know for a fact, but it would be nice to have some type of town halls that recognize that for the people to say that this is what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Innovation and creativity are are core principles in your work. How do you define those words? Well, as I mentioned, I'm a huge fan of researchers, Zakoff and Vergara, and what they've done to the space of creativity as, as far as advancing the canon. But there's just something in the lines of creativity is the ability to modify self-imposed constraints. It's just something about that when it comes to authentic expression, being able to show up with your full attitude, with your full imagination, your full knowledge, your full experience and being able to rifle through the inventory of that in order to 
gain expression is is a beautiful thing. So that's what creativity is for me, being able to move mountains, be an alchemist in a sense. Mm -hmm. Innovation is a little bit different. Innovation is, of course, making things better, building upon things to make them better. But there's also a, a team component to innovation, right? We can't use the same ideas in the same language that got us here to get past here. So we have to invite that diversity. We have to invite collaboration to be able to gain new insights, new ideas in order to be able to progress forward. Now, however, we when we get lost in the shuffle is that leadership ability and being able to switch gears and being able to say, uh, or think with agility and say, okay, this isn't working. We're getting this towards that novel space, that very new space. What might I be able to incorporate right here that it will coalesce this group and galvanize them around this forward movement? Now, how would you apply this to how the way things are run in this city, whether it's like government or business? Because a lot of people I talk to on this show say, you know, this, this city's been siloed for too long. People are doing this here. People are doing this over here. People are doing. And if there was this collaboration or synergy or whatever you want to call it, there would be more progression in this city. How would you apply those concepts to what's going on in the city right now? If I can't give you three things. Oh, yes, please. Right off top. The very first thing is. Buffalo is the birthplace of the study of creativity. We should be known for that. We have the number one graduate program at the Center for Applied Imagination in the world. We should be known for that, right? Mm -hmm. It should be some type of fanfare around that. Like, uh, Is this at UB? This is at Buff State. This is at Buff State. It, it was originally at UB. Okay. But I like to say UB made, and we're both UB alums, so we can say this. But, Buff State. Oh, you didn't go to UB? No. Just about say, oh, I went to UB too. So, <laughs> but UB made the Babe Ruth trade of saying that we don't know what to do with this, and we're going into medicine, and we want to study that, right? Yeah. Psychology, psychiatry, we don't exactly know yet. So, they traded over to Buff State, which was the teaching school at that time, because it was a proper vehicle for being creative. Mm -hmm. But since then, for the past fifty years, it's been studied at Buffalo State. So. We should know that. We should know that brainstorming itself was coined here in Buffalo, New York by Albert Osborne, who wrote Applied Imagination. Those sorts of things. And when companies are using brainstorming and using it the wrong way, they should be coming to Buffalo to learn how to use it the right way. Uh -huh. That's one thing. The second thing is more of, I know it's a hot topic of diversity and equity, but when we talk about diversity, we don't really talk about the difference between being diverse and the practice of diversity. Mm. Diversity is a practice of inviting newness and different perspectives in. That's a constant. And I think that Toronto has been able to win by inviting those type of ideologies, by saying that their city is thriving on diversity. You think diversity is just a buzzword kind of being used now or just it's not, as you say, it's not applied correctly i think it's both of those things i uh -huh. think dei or jedi work has become the buzzword for looking out for bipoc people right but that's right. marketing yeah <laughs> the real meat to this fruit is perspectives and and making sure that that's what how we're leading first making sure that we have if this if we're going to be formulating some type of solution that everybody that this solution impacts is in the room 
mm-hmm. for this conversation, mm-hmm. right? Shareholders, stakeholders, caretakers, community members, administrative teams, from the top down, we all in the room and we're all ideating on this challenge to pre- present a solution that impacts us all. And then the last thing is a real thriving spirit of togetherness, and that can be fostered through collaboration. Right now, the only togetherness that we experience is in Bill's Mafia. Right. <laughs> right? And you don't want to know my real thoughts about that, so I'll keep it clean. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so it's, it's like a, Vice did a study once, uh, and they showed the segregation that still thrives in America, and they focused on Chicago. Mm-hmm. And Chicago is a lot like our city. We're just a lot smaller, but it's a Rust Belt city, you know, on the yep. Great Lakes, like Detroit, Cleveland, all the rest. So what happens in in downtown Chicago is a lot like what happens in downtown Buffalo. When it's time to go to work, there's a, a, a massive amount of, of white people that come into the city's epicenter, mm-hmm. right? But when it's time to leave work, all of that kind of diversity leaves the city and it's back to the way it was before they came in. So I look at that as a type of diversity that we can't afford to continue to ebb and flow, right? We needed to flow right within the city and stay within the city. We need this cross-cultural kind of celebration throughout Mm -hmm. the entirety of the city. Because as it stands right now, the two counties, Erie and Niagara County, is 82.2% white. That's a domination of culture, right? Right. That's not a problem until it's a problem. When you're looking for all hands on deck because all hands make less work or rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. Well, if these people have been siloed here and these people have been siloed here and these people have been siloed here, how do you expect them to live, work and play together? Uh, Yeah. Right. So we have to start to foster and cultivate more of a collaborative spirit. And I think that that starts with my initial notion of celebrating that this is the birthplace of the study of creativity. Talk to me about designing workshop. How does creativity lend itself to leadership roles? Without getting too technical, there's myriad approaches to leadership. Yeah. Right? What's your approach? I'm creative leader all day. But that is a composite of all the leaderships that kind of have been privy to your experience. Mm -hmm. I'll go even further. A huge part of creativity is about your experience. In fact, Professor Emeritus Ruth Noller, this uh, badass mathematician during World War II, she was becoming agitated and perplexed by why her colleagues would be fascinated by coming up with new problems. And she went to them and said, we need to be get more creative. We need to be mesmerized by formulating more solutions. And they're like, we don't know what you mean. We don't even understand what creativity is. This is World War II time, right? Mm-hmm. So she came up with this equation for creativity and it is as creativity is equal to the function of your attitude multiplied by your knowledge, imagination, and evaluation. Now that's a mouthful, I know, (laughs) I know, I know. But when it comes to leadership, we need to be able to, at first, have agency over our, our attitude, how we're feeling in that space. Right. Mm -hmm. Take a moment and a moment is 90 seconds to reckon with yourself and anybody out there. If you've ever been in a fight, you know that 90 seconds is quite a long time. Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> yep. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. So when you are taking agency over your time first, then you get time to just be like, okay, so what's happening here? What's in front of me? And how might I be resourceful in getting across it? So that forces you to be imaginative, to scan the expanse of your lifetime, then start to incorporate what do I know for sure, right? Mm -hmm. And then what's been my experience? So if you've been through authoritative leadership, if you've been through democratic leadership, if you've been through a laissez-faire leadership, if you've been through a servant leadership, you know how those things have been impactful to you. So you can kind of tease and, and, and tether and pinch and pull from those things right, right. in order to be effective at the task that you're leading. In creativity, there's a word called press, right? Mm -hmm. and you're impressed, but we use it differently in creativity. Creativity, press means the relationship between the leader and the environment, right? It's uh, derived from the Latin term pressis, which you know, like uh, translates into container. Yeah. So if we're looking at our, our environment, What's your relationship between yourself and that environment? Are you depressed by it, suppressed by it, compressed by it, impressed by it, mm -hmm. or are you fully expressive within it? Right. Right? That makes sense. So we are aiming to be able to be a full human in our authentic expression, being able to pull from all of our experiences. But the most important thing is being able to say, I don't know, and outsource to the leadership that you need within that time. Well, that makes sense. Talk we got to be able to make mistakes, Thomas. That's the only right, way to get to right. success. Yeah, exactly. And I've made plenty. <laughs> <laughs> so have I. So have I. Talk to me about your four key core components of Phoenix Innovation Group, please. Most definitely. I'll start by just listing them out and then I'll, I'll go into them in detail. At Phoenix Innovation Group, we focus on four key areas that we've been able to apply our methodology. And that is business and or entrepreneurial development consulting change management, cultural competency, and community engagement. Now, what that looks like for business and entrepreneurial development consulting is we align our expert guiding and consulting with cutting-edge projects, the business needs, and their development needs. Mm -hmm. We also tailor solutions to complement the entrepreneurial spirit and the dynamic initiatives of whatever organization that we're serving. Right. And when we're talking about entrepreneurial spirit, you'd be like, well, how do you have entrepreneurial spirit at an organization? That organization is still full of human capital. Not all of that human capital performs the same way. Mm -hmm. Some people perform like lightning and they just get things and take initiative and hustle and go. That's the spirit that we cater to. That's the spirit that we want to align the organization with because we want to make sure that everybody's on the right bus in the right seat headed towards the right destination, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you can give your all to this space and, they, and the organization can receive it gladly. The next thing is change management, where we like to navigate transitions of complex projects and adapting the organization to evolve with the landscape of the change no matter what it is mm -hmm. um right now <laughs> so like just being adaptive of course of course when you break that down to just even being even more simplistic bloomberg business week any of those business forums and periodicals you look at the top five reigning soft skills or power skills is, are going to be creativity problem solving resiliency adaptability communication mm -hmm. right that's going to be across the board right these are the things that we like to focus on, especially within change management. 
The next thing is cultural competency. We were just talking about that with having diversity within the space, yep. enhancing our coaching cultural understanding to align with diverse and collaborative environments, and tailoring our cultural competency initiative to resonate with global focus and societal impact goals. And then the last thing, uh, community engagement, which I love a lot because it you know, I'm a Buffalonian. I'm yeah. a, I, I love my community. Building stronger connections with communities impacted by whatever initiatives are set. Like, I would love to be able to discuss things with Oshai to see how they're steering that impact mm-hmm. within this, like, in our community. And fostering community growth in alignment with philanthropic endeavor, endeavors, right? So, like, just think about yourself, Thomas. I'm sure you have a lot of philanthropic endeavors. But is the impact aligning with what you see yourself having? Or is it fulfilling or is satisf- satisfying, gratifying as you see it being in your mind? Right. We want to assess that and we want to make sure that, again, things are happening in the right spaces at the right time you want them to be happening. Take me through a workshop you would design. You've worked with universities. You've worked with international organizations, community based agencies, schools, churches. Man, you're everywhere. Yeah. Um. Just take take me through like the designing a workshop. What, what does that look like? Well, it starts with a problem. It starts with whatever problem an organization is looking at. Once they decide to pick us, Phoenix Innovation Group, as their dynamic partner, we are excited. It's right. like we ring a bell and be like, let's get to it. All of our focus and attention goes into it. So we go into a discovery session after that because we don't know what your problem is, but we're just excited about it. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that we're giving our all to it but we have to have clarity first right? because that's where the magic happens in the creative problem-solving process. So we go right into clarity. What's going on? What's your problem? Who's the stakeholders? How long have you been facing this? What have you tried? You know, mm-hmm. who's all involved? So on and so forth. Then our team, we get together, we produce a discovery of what the solution may look like. That might look like a workshop. It might look like a, a full-day component. It might look like a multiple-day workshop mm-hmm. right or it might look like something that we break down individually for your leadership team but whatever it is we build that discovery and we send it back to you all so you understand what we see mm-hmm. from, from the, the perspective that we have yeah 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 like is this what you're saying that the problem is is this in alignment and if it is we get to work right then and there with the consignment of whoever we're serving right so they'll mm-hmm. say oh, we love this. Here's the day that we want to put it together. And we go from there. The The larger the organization, the larger the group that we're serving, that's the more of an arduous task. Right. Because then that's the one we have to bring in more facilitators because ideally we like to service, you know, five to 10 people per facilitator, mm-hmm. you know, from our framework and the research that we've done within it. That's how you get optimal results. So if we service in 100 people, then we have to bring in additional facilitators Mm -hmm. and we have to look at the logistics of that where are we having this is it going to be at a conference center okay so where's this conference center going to be like where's the ideal space for it to be at so the larger it is the more arduous the task but the smaller it is we just you know that's like bite-sized candy bars you got to tell yourself to stop (laughs) (laughs) tell me a little bit about your work at buff state I've been an uh, adjunct lecturer at Buffalo State for, uh, I'm about to be going on eight years coming up in the summer of 2024. And I've been applying all of these principles and methodologies my entire time there. 
when I first started there, of course, imposter syndrome kick in, you know, and I have to adapt to uh-huh. applying different creative leadership to navigate. And I had a lot of my colleagues rushing up to me like, Naja, how are you keeping people in class? Like, how are you keeping these students in class? Because they would stay over asking me questions, mm-hmm. engaged, involved, wanting to know more. And then like scholars just started to follow me around campus. And then shout out to one of my colleagues, Tamara McMillan, when she was on campus, she was executive director of C-STEP. So she was just like, you got all these scholars following you around. We just can't have you around. So she gave me an office space. (laughs) And from there, mentoring ensued. And I've established great connections with so many other scholars since then. Some of those scholars have led to business in the area, like with Shays Buffalo. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's been amazing. I've been recognized by the city comptroller for my mentorship at Buffalo State. It's just an amazing, incredible ride up there. I love working with the scholars. I love fellowshipping with them. I love helping them see problems from a different perspective because they have to know that they're bigger than their problems. And a lot of these scholars come from environments like how I come from. And it's like, man, Mm -hmm. if I can make it out of the peril that I was up against, imagine what you're able to do when we're working together. How many scholars do you mentor? Right now? They don't leave. It's like the Hotel California. So (laughs) they never leave. Like, I got scholars all over the globe. You know, they might leave Buffalo, but they never leave in spirit. Right. I still get calls on a regular basis. And if I don't answer, there will be a text to follow. Like, yo, what's up? Like, what are you doing? Like, Uh is you that? Did you too busy now for me? You know, remember? (laughs) You know, we came up in this together. So. Um, I can show you text after, like email after email, text message after text message. That's like that. Um, well, that's got to be really fulfilling. It is, and to be recognized because I I, I got an, an I was recently awarded by uh, forgive forgive me Debbie for if I'm botching the name, but it's uh, I think it's Urban Utopia, something along those lines, and I got an award for leadership and integrity, and that was monumental for me because you're not doing it for that right you're doing it to exact your goals mm-hmm. i got goals so with strong faith and belief in those goals i'm walk, i'm walking towards those and providentially they're opening up to me but along the way opportunities come along and in marketing you'll be a fool to not take advantage of the opportunities that come along so those are the things that are like overflowing mm-hmm. with joy for me. You know what I mean? To be recognized for these things that like I'm at play with, what Stuart Brown calls play. So with, with that recognition and you know, what you've been doing at Buff State, you believe you were born for this role? Just looking at what you studied at ECC, at Buff State, at UB, the awards, the recognition you've received just seems like, Hey, this guy was meant to do this. I do. I really do. And it's been serendipitous. I started out going to the military and that paid for my education to even start going to school. And then when I went to school, I knew nothing about college. You know what I mean? I'm, I was getting my name mentioned on the walls on, on Dean's list and I was going to my advisor pissed off. Like, why is my name on the wall? I come to school on time. I do my work. Like, what's the problem? <laughs> and she had to tell me, you know, calm down, young man. Like being on the Dean's list is a great thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Getting these 4.0s and this and that. And 
a fellowship opened up to me to study something. And I started to look into deviant behavior in Buffalo's youth. Right. Because I'm Buffalo's youth. I was into devious things. I came from the east side. I wanted to know why did we do those things? But more importantly, why did I choose to do something different at that moment in my life? Mm -hmm. And I, I ended up winning a monetary prize for my fellowship there. That led to me going to UB and, and studying psychology even further, joining the Psychi Fraternity of Excellence in Psychology and increasing my veracity for wanting to learn more, engaging my discipline within it. And then I went into therapy intensive after that got into my master's a couple years after that in creativity and I immediately started to ask a question of can a, a workshop in creative problem solving uh, enhance resilience and soft skills in low socioeconomic status black males because I wanted to know what was making me different and in mm -hmm. research and that scholarship forced me to kind of like narrow my focus into that that gave me the framework for this company, Phoenix Innovation Group. Our core service is innovation fitness sessions, innovation fitness training. That came directly from this research, right? We opened up a soft skill incubator downtown. All of these things within my experience helped lend itself to these books that I, that's, that's sitting before you right now. And as I, as I said, it's, it's been engineered serendipity. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I do my storyboarding, I do my planning, and then I put it to the side. These things just open up providentially to me. So is it my purpose? I gauge that by the joy that I feel from doing things like this. I engage in things that Dr. Stuart Brown calls play where I'm, I feel this tremendous amount of joy, but I, it seems like I'm doing nothing at all. That was founding consultant at Phoenix Innovation Group, LLC, Najah Bolden. And we close today's show with Jay Moran speaking with the director of the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at the University at Buffalo, Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor Jr. The two discuss Dr. Taylor's 2023 report titled, How We Can Change the Black East Side, which acts as a neighborhood planning and development framework for Buffalo's East Side communities. Dr. Taylor, always a pleasure to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, we had uh, you on uh, not long ago uh, when you came back and reviewed to a certain extent because the report did come out in 2021, The Harder We Run, the state of Buffalo in 1990 and the present. And that, of course, uh, detailed extensively about the, the conditions of uh, Buffalo's east side and what people, how people are, are living, what really has happened, how actually in many cases conditions have actually uh, decreased and deteriorated over two decades, three decades. Now, a new report from you. It's How We Change the Black East Side. And I'm most certainly looking forward to getting into this. Uh, let's start with an overview from you. Um, you. You know the facts. You've researched these extensively about the realities of Buffalo's East Side. What are the key facts? What are the key realities that play into the, this framework for changing the East Side? Yeah, when, when we took a look at the history of, of Black Buffalo over the last uh, 30 years, uh, we wanted to know two things. Number one, what happened? What are the conditions that continuously breed uh, the challenges facing the African-American population? And secondly, uh, what, were, what were the cause of these issues and, and challenges? And thirdly, why had the intervention strategies that had been utilized in the past uh, failed? 
So we found that there were a series of root causes. Uh, and by root causes, we meant uh, causes of all of the other issues that black people face, causes uh, that triggered other problems and, and other difficulties. Uh, among these root causes were the residential segregation of blacks, not just the segregation of, of blacks, uh, but their containment in underdeveloped spaces where neighborhood and community wealth were continually extracted from the neighborhoods and the communities, and that they were constantly faced with displacement. A lot of this happens because they, blacks, do not own or control the land on which their communities are being built. But by wealth extraction, I'm, I'm talking about the charging of high rents right. uh, for substandard housing. I'm talking about the uh, um, pandemic of foreclosures on these communities, uh, the high prices that are charged for shoddy goods, the high prices that people pay for house and automobile insurance. And I'm also talking about the extensive fines and fees that are rendered by the government uh, on the populations that exist in, 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 in these neighborhoods and communities. And so this is what we mean by the problem of, of wealth extraction or the problems of, of displacement reflected in how black people are continuously pushed out of neighborhoods the moment that speculators and landowners believe that they can make greater profits. So, for example, uh, many of the neighborhoods, black neighborhoods along Buffalo's Main Street corridor are being emptied out. Uh, many of the neighborhoods that are clustered around downtown people are being pushed outside, out of those neighborhoods. And everywhere where communities are located around anchor institutions or other places that have the potentiality of being transformed from low profitability to high profitability, neighborhoods and communities are in trouble. So this is what we mean by, by this, this problem of wealth extraction and uh, the, the, the problems of uh, displacement, housing, and, and the like. And these were the issues that African-American people were facing. And we said, well, why? Why is, is this the case? And we saw that this was very much related to the way we build cities in <laughs> Buffalo that we set aside spaces where low-income populations and groups, and especially the African-Americans, the Latinx and others, uh, live uh, so that they can live in these areas. And these marginalized, underdeveloped, and undervalued places are essential for the creation of high-value places like Clarence. Because, uh, just to uh, add to this, because we talked about this before we go on the air, that if there are places that are considered undesirable by the wealthier, more affluent populations, and there are places where they can go and be separate from that, that makes those places 
that much more valuable. It makes those places that much more valuable. I mean, if we, we look at the model of, of home ownership in the United States, uh, we, that model is based on the commodification of shelter, turning shelter in, into something that you buy and, and sell. And the use of the home, owner-occupied home, as an instrument of, of wealth production. That model requires policies of exclusion, where you design projects, programs, and activities to keep out people based on income and people based on, on, on race because of the linkage between income uh, and, and race and rising property values. Those are, are models of exclusion, models of exclusion. So what we have found in Buffalo is that the whiter and more exclusive a community is, values go up. The blacker and more inclusive a community is, values go down. So on the one hand, while we talk about and praise equity, diversity, and inclusion, hmm. in reality, we practice, we practice exclusion, homogeneity, and uh, anti-equitable activities. And just to clarify one key point here, because you, you, you talked about it, how the white middle-class individual is really pretty much trained that your house, your home is going to be your source for wealth. This is that model. That model cannot work on Buffalo's east side. I mean, no, it, it can't work. It can't work there. And, and the reason it can't work there is because the value of, of those houses and the value of those units will never approximate the value of the other locations and places. Not only that, but e even if, if it could work for a handful of people. A handful, right. Even yeah. if it could work, it's an exclusion model. It's an exclusion model based on individual wealth. So we flip that model by talking about shared ownership and the building of community wealth. Because, and the, and the central idea is can we commodify shelter? And, and by that I mean to say the moment you commodify shelter, what you're saying in actuality that a certain segment of the population, a significant segment of the population, are forced to live in dilapidated and rundown housing. That's the reality. That's the reality. So we, we think we can alter and, and change that model. And this isn't to say that one is opposed to home ownership right. and individual wealth production. That's fine. But at the same time, what we are opposed to is the creation of neighborhoods and communities where people are forced to live in dilapidated and rundown housing. And that's what this particular model calls for. And I say it calls for that because everybody knows that under the present system of, of housing valor, valorization, the value of a house is not based upon the parcel but based upon the neighborhood and the community. So you exclude people from the community in order to increase property values. What we're saying is let's create a very different model, 
And now instead of emphasizing individual ownership, we're emphasizing shared ownership so that the people who live inside those neighborhoods and communities control and own the land on which their community is, is, is built. And that we emphasize community wealth accumulation rather than individual wealth accumulation because community wealth accumulation allows us to generate wealth that can be utilized on behalf of the entire community. And, and by utilization on behalf of the entire community, I'm talking about the creation of surpluses that will allow us to reduce other levels of cost. Let me give you a concrete example. Please. We were talking the other day uh, with Pastor Pointer, who's heading up the, uh, uh, the food co-op that they're developing on the Buffalo's East Side. And one of the things that the pastor emphasized is that we will not, we will have investors, but we will not be paying dividends to these investors. Instead, we will use the surpluses to reduce the cost of food and raise the, 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 the uh, 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 income of the people who work in the store. In this way, you pass on the profits that are being produced to the consumers rather than, than uh, uh, people who have invested across the time. And those investors recoup by being able to purchase lower-priced goods and services in the store uh, that they have helped to build and create. So this is a, a classic example of how we use surplus community wealth in order to build stronger, better, and healthier neighborhoods and communities. And also, it's worthwhile as we say this, just to also make another clarification here. The affordable housing models that we're seeing uh, different developments being built in different parts of the city, including in the east side, that current affordable housing model as that stands is not does not work inside what you are talking about here. Right. The affordable housing model is, is very problematic as, as we use it. Uh, it's a model driven by the utilization of low-income tax credits, and it is supposed to be targeted for people at the uh, bottom of the income order, but the developers have learned how to circumvent that. And many of these houses, especially now, are being flooded on Buffalo's east side, especially in the Broadway Fillmore area, which I believe, based on our research and analysis, is one of the prime targets of gentrification in the city of Buffalo. But many of these houses will cap rents at around 60% of the median household income which equates to people who are making forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year, and it becomes very, very affordable for them. I know recently when we looked at uh, market rate housing for a one-bedroom apartment uh, for 2023, it was around $964 a, a month. And people will say, wow, that, that's really, really great. But when you run the numbers, you see problems. Uh, right. For a person to afford that, they got to be making about $3,600 a month or around $40,000 a year. Not bad. But 
about 54% of African Americans make less than $40,000 a year. Around 32 to 33% make less than $20,000 a year. So that's too high. So if it's going to be affordable for the, 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 the black and, and, and brown and immigrant populations, you got to do something like Elaine Brown did in, in Oakland, California. Build units where, that are catered to people making around 30% or less than the medium area uh, household income. So that's a part of the issue. The, the other part of the, 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 the issue is that many of the people who are advocating these units are seeing that as a solution to the severe housing problems faced by African Americans, and I would also say the Latinx and immigrant populations. But that's not the case. You've got to fix the housing that people are currently living in. You're not going to build so many affordable housing that one day you'll look up and all of these houses will be empty because people have moved. That's a fairy tale. Right. That's a fairy tale, something that Walt Disney ought to write <laughs> rather than urban planners. The, 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 the issue here then is fix these houses, raise the quality while simultaneously lowering the rent. And that's the challenge that, that, that we're facing the final part of that is I call these houses a, a Trojan horse for gentrification because they will be pulling in large numbers of, of whites. I had a developer tell me, and this was an African-American developer, that he was building affordable housing around in the Broadway area, specifically so that they could attract a significant number of whites along with blacks. A significant number of whites along with blacks. And I'm saying this is because these are the kinds of, of tactics and strategies that are being used to impact negatively on the African-American community on Buffalo's east side, rather than saying we have a serious problem, how can we solve it? We're talking with uh, Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor, Jr., the director for the, uh, of the Center of Urban Studies at the University of Buffalo. Their recent report is called How We Change the Black East Side. You did touch upon it when you uh, made the uh, anecdote about the uh, developer that I talked to, but you did mention how Broadway Fillmore area in the city of Buffalo, from what you understand and from the inf information you're receiving, is the prime development or prime spot for what will become gentrification in the yeah. city of Buffalo. Can you share other pieces of information that uh, lead you to that conclusion? Yeah. One, one of the ironies is that this was also an area that is where economic hardship is, is at the highest levels. Uh, most of the east side neighborhoods uh, uh, that have the highest what we call hardship indexes are in or near the Broadway Fillmore area. Um, so there's a lot of hardship in that, that community, but it's also a community with vast levels of, of vacant land. It's near downtown Buffalo, and, and it is anchored by uh, a major uh, uh, site, and that would be uh, the... Um, the, the, the Central 
terminal. Right. So it has this magnificent uh, artifact that that can be used as a stimulus for housing and economic development, and its proximity to downtown makes it a prime target. So the mayor of Buffalo uh, instituted one of their redevelopment strategies in that area. I think that might have been the Adams Street Project Mm. uh, somewhere near Genesee and and Broadway, which is essentially a homeowner model with the idea that you develop home ownership and that that will trigger other forms and other types of development. We see uh, uh, the flooding of that area with... uh, with these affordable apartment units. And we are also seeing property values increase in those locations as well as the percentage of whites and uh, uh, individuals with uh, uh, college degrees occurring in those locations and spaces. And so it's, that's the kind of data that triggers our belief that this is a major site of, of, of gentrification uh, in the city of Buffalo, although it is at its very nascent stages of of of, of development. Just curious, because uh, we have, there's a lot in this report, and obviously we only have so much time. But when, like you said, it's it's the, you see this coming. You see the 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 seeds being sown. They're being fertilized, and uh, the, I, the gentrification will will follow if this path is continued. What could be done to stop that right now and find a way to continue to move forward. Yes. Uh, following the, the, the release of The Harder We Run, uh, my team began to notice uh, significant levels of development occurring on the Buffalo's east side. Uh, based on our count, uh, which is uh, based on a report that was released by Business First, uh, you got something around two to three billion dollars of projects that are either occurring or projects that are planned and hope to be implemented uh, sometime in, in, in the future. So we begin to think of what kind of model of neighborhood development could we create that would change the trajectory of development on Buffalo's East Side. We believe that the existing model uh, that was being used was not one uh, that would lead to to fruitful results for the African-American community. Based on our analysis of black communities all over the country, including places like Atlanta, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, we were convinced that these approaches would ultimately lead to the displacement of the African-American community. Um, so we, we took a step back and we tried to understand how the processes of building the city contributed to the underdevelopment of the African-American community. And we forged a strategy of developing what we call an alternative model that was based upon five principles. Uh, Community control, shared ownership, cooperative economics, 
solidarity, and community wealth production, and community wealth production, that these five principles would anchor this process of, 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 of development. A, a central part of, of that was to confront the issue of how do we use the redevelopment and the transformation of a community to empower folks and to provide them the skills to earn a, better, earn a living within this metropolitan region. So we wanted to create a, a project where one, we integrated planning and implementation. In other words, rather than planning and then later on development, we were going to plan and develop at the same time. Most significantly, we were going to develop an innovative training program based on on-the-job training so that people would acquire the skills that would enable them to rebuild their neighborhoods and rebuild their lives simultaneously. Now, this idea and notion came from our observation that the East Side had been turned into a job market for white people. Mm. I want to repeat that. Right. That the East Side had been turned into a job market for white people. So when we talk about the Kensington Project. A billion dollar project. A billion dollar project. We raised the question. Two questions. One was, why are white people in suburban communities celebrating, popping champagne and lighting up cigars? <laughs> then we raised the question, who will get those jobs? Who will get those contracts? And we concluded that the overwhelming majority of people getting those jobs and contracts were going to be white. Even Mayor Brown admitted that, which meant that bill, that billion of dollars would flow through the east side like water through a sieve. Then we looked across the east side, even in the African-American Heritage Corridor. Most of the work, the physical work, was being done by white people. You walk down the east side streets and you see people fixing sidewalks and installing pipes or even cutting the grass on the vacant lots. They're mostly white folks, mostly white folks. So we said, why don't we train black people? And this is something, by the way, we've been talking about for decades. Sure. So it's not a new idea. But it's how you do it. Yeah. Train them while they're doing the work. And let's avoid the, 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 the kind of fiasco that the Northland Training Center has created. We're not going to give people a test to see if they can be tested. We give them the skills they need to do the work. You don't have to be a mathematician. You don't know math. We'll teach you the math that's required to do this job. You don't know how to read. We'll teach you to read what you need to read to do these jobs. 
tailor skill development to the requirements of a job. So that requires a new type of job training program. But in this city and across the nation, we have people who can do that. So that's what we mean by a, a new model, a model that is based upon seriously making the decision and the choices. So with shared ownership, a lot of people say shared ownership, what are you talking about? Cooperatives, what are you talking about? And we said, what is the most successful institution in the black community? The church. That's a co-op. I will repeat it. The church is a co-op. It's people pooling their resources and, and planning and developing based on unity around a singular goal. Why can't we upscale that model in a non-secular way so that in, 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 in a secular way so that we are now pooling our resources to buy property, pooling our resources to develop commercial establishment, building and developing co-ops. Co-ops can't work. Ask the people at Lexington Co-op. <laughs> right. Tell them it doesn't work. And that will do it for Producers Picks. We would like to thank our guests, Naja Bolden and Dr. Henry Lewis Taylor Jr. If you missed anything or would like to hear it again, you can get this program as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on the Amplify BTPM app. Each episode is also online at WBFO.org. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for listening. Buffalo Toronto Public Media History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the week of January 29th through February 4th. I'm your host and program director, Tom Barich. Western New York, historically not usually known for its seismic activity, did register an earthquake on January 29th, 1864. The rest of these are all February 1st. February 1st, 1878 is the date that the first phone company began operations and registered its first call in Buffalo. Though originally founded in 1960, the Buffalo Bills did not join the NFL until February 1st, 1970. While the Pan Am Exposition happened in Buffalo between May and November of 1901, tickets to the historical event went on sale to the public for the very first time on February 1st, 1901. And February 1st, 1948 is the date that musician James Ambrose Johnson Jr. was born. That musician will later go by the more recognizable name of Rick James. You've been listening to the WBFO History Bite. Discover more stories about Western New York's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For Buffalo Toronto Public Media, I'm Tom Barich.